And I think I just saw the power in that sort of diversity in an environment. And that's what one definite aspect that I love about working at the tech school in the north of Melbourne is that there's so much diversity and so many languages spoken by this, the young people that come in. And it's just so fascinating hearing about all these um, diverse pathways and backgrounds. Hello, my name is Barney and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Vari McIntosh. Vari is an earth scientist by trade, who after realising that she could turn her passion for engaging young people in science and technology into her day job, made the jump from research into education a couple of years ago. Currently, she works as part of a new Victorian state government initiative, equipping young people with the skills they need for the future world of work. Vari is particularly passionate about building confidence in young women when working with new technologies and hopes that her current work may play a small part in increasing female representation in science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM. I had a great time chatting with Vari and learnt a lot, and I am certain that you will too. As always in the age of COVID, we had some issues with sound over Zoom, but it doesn't take long to get used to it. So without further delay, I bring you Dr Vari McIntosh. Hello, Vari. How's it going? Good, thank you. How are you, Matt? Yeah, really, really well. Uh, we got to talking a little bit prior to recording and we were discussing how we've been reacting to the COVID-19 pandemic and, and being in solitary confinement in a way. <laughs> yes, how have you been it. finding it all? Yeah, I, like we were just discussing, I feel like yeah, I'm in a lucky position, thankfully, um, and hope a lot of our listeners are as well, but that, yeah, healthy, um, and everyone I know is healthy, and yeah, just, I'm actually finding it quite an, a nice time in terms of, you know, I finally feel like I'm slowing down, <laughs> finding, you know, time to reflect and for gratitude, so feeling very thankful for a lot of the things that I had in my pre-COVID life, but also current um, situation, and just, yeah, find it a, a really lovely time to reflect and slow down. Have you found yourself doing something that you don't normally get to do or that you've re-found something that, you've, that you didn't realise you were missing and, and now it's back? I guess th- things that I, were, I was doing before and enjoying when, when I did them, but just realising that I didn't make it a priority to do some things before, like spending much more time in the garden, like we we're talking about daily exercise, daily yoga and the sort of meditation that I find that comes along with that. And yeah, just generally being a bit slower and not filling up all of my time with, <laughs> I'm a very organized person and like to have, you know, s- schedule everything and not being able to schedule is, you know, been a really uh, important lesson for me, I think, through this that I'm really enjoying. <laughs> yeah. Would you consider yourself a, a busy person that likes to remain busy in the pre-COVID life? Was that how you would have defined yourself? I would have, yes. And I think um, this is showing me this sort of forced slowing down that maybe I actually want to be a less busier person (laughs) post-COVID because I'm really, yeah, really enjoying having, yeah, a bit of a slower pace through my life and, yeah, filling it with things that I still find important and I'm passionate about, but um, maybe just not filling it with so many things. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, for sure. I've always considered myself 
an extrovert and a complete extrovert, but I'm actually finding so much peace in the time alone or with my partner, you know, walking my dog and doing jobs around the house or just sitting and relaxing, playing board games. I actually Mm. probably have had less dead time, I like to call it, you know, watching passive TV or just doing something to pass the time. I've actually done a lot less of that. Every single minute has sort of been used the way I want it to be. And and that's really liberating. And I said this the other day to a friend that I feel free and he was feeling the opposite way, that we're not free, that, you know, we've had our liberties taken away, not um, unfairly, but mm. because of a, a pandemic that he understands. But, you know, we've we've been forced to isolate and we can't see family and friends and, you know, even going to the shops is a risk depending on where you're going and, and for what purpose you're going out with mm. fines starting to be handed out. But I'm feeling almost more free than ever, which is really weird for someone that likes to consider himself an extrovert. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more actually with yourself. I feel very free from it. And I think, yeah, that, that, that's really important. That's a really important point. And something I've been reflecting on as well is that, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm more mindful of everything, everything I'm doing in every minute. You know, I'm more appreciative of the thing, the small things I'm doing that maybe I just sort of filled my time with in before. You know, when I do watch, uh, you know, a show or, or something, I'm really appreciative and I'm enjoying that time. Or when I go for a walk, I'm, you know, looking around myself more of what's going on. And yeah, I've, and that's a really important point about the, it feels like we're disconnected, but I find I'm being more innovative in ways that I can connect with family and friends. Like a lot of, all of my family are in Scotland. So I'm actually finding that I'm re-appreciating the connection that we can have through digital means Whereas before, sometimes I'd be tired or and chatting to mum or dad on the phone. Now I'm actually more excited about those digital connections. Yeah, which is interesting. It's an interesting time. I'd love to touch on your journey from Scotland to Australia and, and how that happened and when, but I'd love you to start introducing yourself and a little bit about what you do and your sort of academic journey. Yeah, so my journey sort of started in Scotland, but moved to Melbourne six years ago to do my PhD in earth sciences. So I'm a scientist sort of by trade, earth scientist by trade. I did my undergraduate in Glasgow and then moved to Melbourne to do my PhD in 2014. That PhD was sort of looking at um, how you can use computer modelling, but also lab techniques to reconstruct how the earth has evolved over millions of years. And that sort of earth history, I just find so fascinating. Um, But my current work is actually, I've sort of moved away from that. And I'm now in education, working as part of a new state government, so Victorian, the Victorian state in Australia, a a new initiative around how we can use um, sort of more innovative and future-focused learning methods to engage students, young people in STEM, but also just new ways of thinking. So you're preparing students basically with the skills that they may need for the future world of work and how that is rapidly changing. And so my current role is at the Whittlesea Tech School, which is in Melbourne's north. And I basically develop and uh, facilitate learning programs, inquiry-based learning for young people to solve real-world problems um, and develop their transferable skills that will prepare them for any job in the future. Yeah, I actually met you at Whittlesea Tech School and we got talking and I thought that yeah, the work that you've done and the journey you've had would be one that would be amazing to unpack and, and listen to, but also the fact that 
you're working in an area that I'm actually really passionate about, which is inquiry-based learning and that design-based thinking model as well. Yeah, looking at how STEM can be actually connected to not just formulas on a page or, you know, just the, the rigorous science, but also looking at the humanities and combining how we can relate STEM to ideas of how to improve our world and what the future looks like as well. Absolutely. And and you would have observed this when you came to visit us as well, but we at the Widow C Tech School definitely, you know, in sort of embed the arts or creativity or, you know, whatever term you want to give it in all of our programs. And we really think that's an important part of how you can sort of communicate and express ideas as a yeah, as a means. So yeah, it's something we're really passionate about as well, and myself included, um, at my workplace. Awesome. So I want to go back to Scotland. Whereabouts in Scotland are you from and, and what was it like growing up over in the, at the other side of the world in the cold? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit chillier than Melbourne sometimes. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland. So just outside Glasgow in a small town called Lindsay. Yeah, basically it was 15 minutes from the CBD of Glasgow, but it was basically countryside because everything's a lot smaller in Scotland than it is in Australia. I had, yeah, very, uh, a lovely upbringing. I went to a public school. I wouldn't have said my education was particularly exciting, but it was, you know, it was very traditional. And sort of through that, I, you know, flipped back and forth whether I wanted to follow a science direction or a mathematics or arts. I actually, yeah, I thought you, I felt like you had to choose one path. <laughs> and so when I left school, I actually went to university to study mathematics. And whilst there, um, yes, at Glasgow University, discovered earth sciences and just thought the idea of studying how our planet had evolved in the history of that planet was just so fascinating. <laughs> um, and so I sort of flipped in and followed that pathway. But whilst at school, I thought, you know, I maybe wanted to be a journalist. I loved uh, English was a subject that we studied and I loved sort of that, that subject too. And yeah, like I thought that I had to choose one, but actually, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I worked as a science journalist science writer for a magazine called Cosmos Magazine. And so, yeah, I think now that I reflect back, I had quite a traditional education, but, and I felt like I had to follow a pathway, but since then I've sort of, you know, diverted into a lot of different fields and yet including my, my journey, physical journey to another country. I actually lived in Canada for a year during my undergraduate as well. And I think, yeah, just sort of following interests was, yeah, sort of why my sort of pathway has diverted in so many different ways. Yeah, but I still love going back to Scotland. It's a beautiful country. If you've ever been, I'm sure everyone would agree, but I love the way of life here in Melbourne and yeah, have yeah, settled, I think, here for now. But yeah, love, love going back to Scotland when I can. You talked about having a traditional schooling. What did you mean by that? What did your parents do and what was their influence on your schooling? Yeah, it wasn't very innovative. And I think I reflect now because, you know, all, all my current role is, is trying to think of innovative ways to approach topics that maybe I learned at school or topics that I didn't learn at all at school. A lot of my science education for the first three years of high school was out of a textbook. I think we did maybe two experiments. And now having been in the lab, I worked in the lab for five years, thinking of that as science seems so far from what I, you know, I did as a scientist. Um, so I didn't have very much insight into what the what the real world would look like. But yeah, I think the, the school that I went to was a public school, but there was a very heavy focus on getting to university. That was sort of the the path we were sort of all encouraged to follow. And, and it's slightly different to 
I guess, education here in Australia is in Scotland, university is free for everyone. So that could probably be, there's a big influential factor in that. Um, my parents were always very encouraging of sort of whatever we wanted to do. They ha both hadn't been to university. I was the first in the family to attend university, but dad had, did accountancy through an apprenticeship and mum had also uh, studied nursing through an a sort of apprenticeship style. So both, I guess, fields now that would be carried out at university, but they were very encouraging of following um, what we were interested in but probably were encouraging that we went to university. But that is a, probably a lot to do with the fact that it is free in Scotland. And so a lot of people that could go to university did go to university, whether that's maybe the right pathway. I mean, what is the right pathway? But it's kind of almost encouraged um, that you do a university degree because you can. Yeah, and, and that idea of university being free is a really progressive one that, you know, was available here once upon a time but has now turned into the domain of the left. And I, Scotland seems from the outside, and, and not, I've never been myself, but I know a few Scottish people, but you see that rough and ready attitude and Glasgow embodies that in many ways as well from, from the people I've met and what I've seen. Uh, without being there myself. But then there's this very much uh, left-leaning, both sort of socially but also, you know, the idea of Brexit, mm. the idea of independence, the idea of, I guess, free university, but also, you know, unions and labour groups and things like that. Mm. How does... I didn't want to get into this straight away or at all, but, you know, <laughs> um, I'm I'm interested. So what's your take on the position that Scotland has in general politically and has it got anything to do with being part of Great Britain, but maybe not the the main part of Great Britain? And maybe mm. that has something to do with I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess yeah, it's a very interesting topic, isn't it? I wondered if we would discuss it or not. But, yeah, growing up in Scotland, it was, I think, yeah, the free university is incredible. It's strange. I, I feel like I'm maybe not in the, the best position to discuss it anymore because, I've, I mean, I've been away from Scotland now for f six years. But, yeah, growing up in Scotland, it, I mean, it was fantastic, I think, the, you know, I'm very passionate about equity um, in education. And I think, yeah, the ability that to have free university is fantastic. The, the opportunity that you could follow any pathway that you want, um, regardless of your socioeconomic status, is incredible. It, it has its slight downfalls and I think sort of what I touched on before in terms of you feel like you almost have to go to university and I don't think that's the right pathway for everyone, depending on what you want to do and I, and I also am very passionate at the fact that what you do when you leave school is not necessarily what you have to do for the rest of your life and I think you'll know that yourself working in education that's not you know we try and encourage students that it's not the be all and end all anymore you'll probably have many different careers and many different um, pathways that you'll follow but yeah having free education having free healthcare, yeah, it was very yeah there's there's parts that I miss in that sense about Scotland Scotland and yeah, I mean, I think you touched on asking about the not the main part of the UK, which is yeah, <laughs> interesting, and and it's a tough part about growing up in Scotland, I guess. You know, the overwhelming majority didn't vote for Brexit in, in Scotland, yet that's what happened. But so yeah, it's it's tough. But yeah, there's some fantastic bits about growing up in Scotland too. Um, and yeah, the hardy bit about Glasgow, yeah, <laughs> it does have that um, reputation still. I I mean, yeah, I think there's. Um, that, that's not so much anymore. Maybe that's um, train spotting has, has um, let that live on <laughs> yeah. further. 
but Possibly. maybe um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't think that that reputation will or that association will ever disappear thanks to train spotting even though that was actually located in edinburgh <laughs> okay but yeah. um yeah yeah it does have that sort of association doesn't it yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, no, that's good to – I just get a little bit of a gauge because I think that some of the experiences and where we've grown up really do play a part on where we end up in the long run and what is normal in Scotland may not be normal in Texas or in Queensland or in Cambodia or, you know, so everyone's experience mm. really makes a difference to – where they end up. And and my previous guest, James Haddam, was talking about being involved in nature throughout his life mm. and having a real intimate connection with the natural world. And that led him or really affected the decisions he made. When I heard that Scotland had a free education and that university was almost that expectation, but that academia and, and possibly just education in general and learning was so, it, well, is so important and valued. Maybe that's where it came from. So STEM, was that always your journey? You you mentioned journalism earlier Mm. as well. So you had a little bit of the, I guess, the arts or the the written word as part of your passion area in education, but then you also had the science and maths. What ended up allowing science and maths to win that battle? (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, I guess perceived win because, yeah, I've always loved writing and have always, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed writing. And yeah, thought that I, when I chose maths and then when I chose science to study at university, perhaps I was leaving that behind. But I guess I don't, I don't actually know. I can't think back what made me decide to go to university to study maths and then change to science. But I think it was just interest. And I, I, yeah, when I was, I was sort of reflecting on this recently, you know, I've had a sort of already a bit of a wiggly journey <laughs> and I think I've always just sort of followed uncertainly I've never I've not really been certain when I've made these decisions but I've just sort of followed interests and by the end of schooling I was just super I was really interested in mathematics and I really loved the logic behind it and solving problems and then when I was at university I, I chose earth science as a sort of elective subject found even that even more fascinating or more interesting so decided to follow that pathway and then I'm my final year at university, um, which was an honours year, so we carried out a research project and I found research really interesting, the idea that you could come up with new findings um, and make interpretations based on that um, about the earth, what I found really fascinating. So that's when I you know, decided to undertake a PhD, but was always really interested in travel. So I, I didn't want to, and, and seeing the world. Um, so I wanted to do that somewhere that wasn't my hometown. So that's when I yeah, moved to Australia. And then during my PhD, I, I worked a lot. Um, I did a lot of volunteering in schools and with young people. And then so then realised that you know I actually felt I didn't enjoy as much working in the lab anymore. I wanted to you know engage young people and diverse groups of people in the things that I was finding really fascinating and interesting. So science and technology, and that's sort of what led me to yeah, education. So and yeah, touching on that, you know, how, how did science and maths win? I guess I've actually you know. I didn't realise how much writing and creative writing and creative visualisation and through writing um, scientific papers, how you had to really be creative in the way that you wanted to display and visually communicate your findings, your scientific findings. So actually, I found a lot of arts within the, I guess, STEM pathway that I've taken that I've actually had to use a lot of, yeah, the, the bits about what I thought were, you know, the are arts, but what I thought were completely separate fields, I've been able to use just within the pathway that I've taken. 
and do so currently in my my current work. Yeah, I think the the important part of schooling or the important part of education is realizing its purpose. What did the purpose of education and of the field that you're studying? How did the, that purpose actually lead you on the journey that you went to? Did you find that maths wasn't, even though you, you loved it, it didn't have the implications that you probably wanted to have on the world as much as maybe earth science or was it purely out of the enjoyment? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think probably a little bit of both. Yeah, just it's not that I lost interest in mathematics and I still sort of find it fascinating when I have to incorporate it into a learning program that we're developing or helping students or young people. But I think, yeah, maybe I just realised that things aren't in silo. And I guess, yeah, that was something I was going to, as you were talking there, I was thinking about, you know, during my schooling, I was never told, you know, I studied a sort of equivalent of VCE physics and mathematics. And I was never told that that wasn't something, you know, that I shouldn't be studying that. And I think I hadn't really maybe noticed, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I hadn't realised the inequality in sort of STEM fields until I was doing my PhD here in in Melbourne. That wasn't to do with my the PhD work I was doing. It was when I was doing the outreach work, I would realise that there just wasn't as much interest. And then, I, you know, I'd go to talks or I would read literature about the sort of the underrepresentation of women in STEM fields and the lack of sort of desire for, you know, school-aged young women to take up these STEM fields. And that's where I thought, you know, maybe I can help that. And that's sort of what led me, I guess, to where I am now as well. And sort of, yeah, showing through the work that we do that, and, and through my own reflection of my schooling that, you know, you don't necessarily have to consider yourself a STEM person to study a STEM subject or you don't have to um, give up arts as part of that or you know you don't have to follow a STEM subject but that there's wiggly sort of pathways and that just by following your interests you'll discover your own strengths and your own you know like I was sort of discussing that I love writing and I've always really enjoyed that way of communicating interesting information to other people and sort of didn't think of that as part of science or maths and you know it is a huge part. So yeah, hope to sort of, I'm at the, the tech school that I work at, the sort of STEM centre that we, I work at, we, students don't come, they're, they're not, we don't have enrolled students. We have partner schools, partner secondary schools that, that visit us at the tech school, but we don't have mathematics or we don't have science subjects. Yeah, like we we're discussing, we use inquiry-based learning. So students come to us and they'll tackle a real world problem. For instance, one of our programs was looking at in a rapidly growing population, um, especially in Melbourne's north, as you'll be aware, how do people, how do they stay connected to both other people in the local area, facilities, services and things that are happening in the local area, as well as nature. So how do you keep people feeling connected? And students came up with ways that they could allow, to keep people connected and build a sense of community as part of that. So and we're currently developing one around, um, you know, antimicrobial resistance and how we can use biotechnology, a huge growth industry in Melbourne's north, and how we can use that to sort of solve our, you know, some of our biggest challenges around food security and antimicrobial resistance. And yeah, so just showing students that these are multi, life is multidisciplinary. You don't have to necessarily decide on a subject in, in silo. You can explore multiple interests that you have through one journey. Yeah, and, and finally schools are getting on board with this because the traditional model of separated subjects and the subjects really only matter because it gets you into a university or gets you into a field that you want to get into because of prerequisites and it, it doesn't really combine the lessons from each discipline into 
a general knowledge. It, it, they really are in silos, as you said. And the fact is that this isn't some philanthropist putting money down to say this is important. It's actually come from the Victorian government. So the fact is mm. that there is a little bit of a wake-up call to the economy and, and jobs and, and all the different sectors realising that, hey, the skills that we're actually looking for aren't that you're absolutely amazing at physics and nothing else or you're a brilliant writer but you can't add two plus two. You need to have a big set of content knowledge but more importantly the skills that you actually can transfer into new knowledge because jobs and education and and skills that are needed are rapidly changing. So I remember talking to you about the project of the tech school and what the Victorian government is actually looking at and what sort of time frame are we looking at to get this embedded in schools? Yes, yeah. So it's really fascinating. It's a really interesting initiative. And you touch on a number of points there because the, the tech school initiative here is a, a state government, Victorian government initiative that is a, yeah, based on a sort of hub and spoke model. So we're a centre um, with sort of cutting edge technologies and yeah, we use design thinking and inquiry-based learning and lots of sort of methods or techniques and mindsets that are used in industry. So in sort of real world settings to, to develop learning programs. And so, yeah, the, the initiative itself is, is all about, it's not about necessarily content knowledge because like you, like you touched on there, we don't know what the jobs of the future will be. Um, and the research is, is suggesting that we won't have, you know, one career anymore. We'll have multiple and we will need to be able to have the skills to transfer our, to transfer into those different jobs. So a lot of what we teach at the tech schools is, you know, developing digital literacy, but not with one technology, just the building confidence with new technologies and being able to approach a new technology with confidence is what we try and develop in our young people is that confidence, but also yeah, adaptability. So being able to be posed with a new idea and quickly sort of um, investigate that idea or concept and come up with their own ideas of how they could solve that problem or challenge. But yeah, the, the initiative itself is actually a 20-year plan. Basically, yeah, over the 20 years, what they're hoping is that we will be able to sort of tran- transition education in Victoria, the state, back into schools. So, yeah, we have four- 14 partner schools. Other tech schools have differing numbers, but it's based on the municipality, so the council region. And it's a completely equitable system, so all programmes are free. We work cross-sector, so government, independent and Catholic schools. And, yeah, it's a 20-year plan that we will sort of develop the this inquiry-based learning approach and this mindset and train teachers to kind of bring that back into their own homeschool settings so it was a really um, interesting I think very powerful initiative that is multifaceted so it's not only about developing sort of the skills within the students and the young people that attend the tech school but it's also about um, sort of trying transferring and training teachers to with these skills and confidence themselves in new technologies and new ways of of teaching and inquiry-based projects. It's funny that if you're coming up with a solution to that you mentioned before about maybe connecting people with the natural environment as well as building community up in the north in growth suburbs or looking at biotech, if you're just using one specific skill in that area that's in a siloed delivery, you know, today we're going to learn how to make a greenhouse without any context whatsoever. That'll be forgotten fairly quickly. But if you're putting that 
in combination with something that the student, a question that the students have developed, that the, the, a question that is relevant and that actually is at the forefront of thinking generally, not just as an example for school students, it's actually at the forefront of discussion in almost every industry that has a stake in it. That really will allow students to remember that knowledge forever, to collaborate, to think more deeply about the purpose of schooling, which is something that's missing because, you know, going back again and that traditional model that you mentioned in Scotland and the traditional model that I went to school with, it still exists today. And there are these programs and there are many people trying to push inquiry-based learning, but then the testing is still there, the the VCE or the the NAPLAN or all sorts of different really standardised tests that come about at the end. So the incentive to move towards this more inquiry or design-based or transdisciplinary approach may not be there for what schools are actually ticked off. How is the box going to be ticked for that school? It's, It's results and trying to find the difference there, trying to find that balance between being able to, you know, actually select students based on aptitude and, and whatever and, and hard work, but then also ensure that they're able to go beyond the classroom and into the, the workplace. And, and that's what I love about the tech school and that initiative. But is there a way to incentivize more and more schools and jobs and people to and institutions to really approach things in an inquiry-based model or that transdisciplinary model rather than that siloed approach? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And, and you've touched on a really important point there because, yeah, if it is a really more, I guess, a more authentic way of, you know, learning multiple skills because we can have, you know, you have to be able to solve a problem. You know, there's, there's, it's so multifaceted. But, you know, when the tests, the examinations are still in the format they are, then it is, it's a really tricky one. And I, I don't really know what we, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, my background isn't in teaching and, I, and that's something I always really empathise with with the teachers that visit us because they're so passionate and enthusiastic about the programmes, but they still have their own sort of, yeah, tick boxes, like you said, to meet, I guess. So it's, it's a really tricky one and I don't, I don't know what we, what we do, but hopefully these experiences, like you said, are, I hope that we're providing students with at least an insight into sort of a different approach and what it could be like when they enter the real world, I guess, after school (laughs) and what the sort of, you know, when you work, when you're working day to day, the use a multiple, multiple of different skills um, and everything that you do. So yeah, hopefully it is providing students with memorable experiences um, that they will, they they will take away. And that's something I always try and um, reflect on with students is that, you know, at the tech school, my my um, expertise is not in necessarily biotechnology or it's not in, you know, whatever sort of we're focusing on, but that we're learning together. And that when we always, I always try and reflect at the end of um, the programs I facilitate that did anyone feel scared or apprehensive when we mentioned that you would be, you know, using 3D modeling and computer aided design software and um, coding and you would, be, you know, they would be incorporating all these different bits. You would have to come up with your own ideas because I know I was scared when, when I first started even in this role, and that's not that long ago, about when mentioning that I would be, you know, facilitating coding. And I think that that's something really powerful about the actual physical space in the tech school is that it's really empowering to, that we're all in it together. We're all learning. There's, even the facilitators are still developing their skills and helping. And we'll always, in every program, we're approached with a new um, sort of problem or, you know, 
code that we're not quite sure of and we have to work it out together with young people and I think that's something really empowering about the initiative and the space for young people as well because they can they can see that you know we're and I think that's really empowering when they take it back to their school is that you know teachers in general and people in general don't know everything no one knows everything so we have to kind of learn it together and that's I think really empowering to be be have um take ownership over your own learning and that you know life is all about continuous learning yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so empowering for teachers as well to realise that they don't have to be this bearer of all knowledge and wisdom, that there's actually more power in learning together and discovering together. And yeah, having that more of a facilitator approach and almost a peer approach with mm. other humans rather than this, I'm up here and you're down there, listen to me. Because I think that's what sometimes makes kids disillusioned is the fact that they've got better info at their fingertips sometimes and that what they actually need help in is how to structure learning and how to approach learning and what skills can they learn in a group setting in a in a structured setting that really should be actually looking at what innovative industry is actually doing because that's where we're heading and you mentioned it a little bit before about it's really important to know that you're not in the, the same job forever and that mm. we're almost building up a brand, not in a job, but in yourself these days, and not just a reputation and how you look, but what skills are you learning and how are you surrounding yourself with people that you want to emulate? And I think you touched on a really important point there about, um, you know, learning how to learn is the really key bit, because like you said, we're not going to, students or young people that come to our um, biotechnology program, not all of them are going to leave and or go on to be biotechnologists, but being able to approach a new theme or concept or idea and yeah, learn something about it and then apply that learning is just yeah, so powerful that could be you know, transferred into any new, new problem or challenge based. I want to go back to your PhD and your passion in earth sciences. What mm. was it? that, I mean, you, you said it was just interesting to you, but was there something that drew you to it that was beyond that? Was was there any news about the way the earth was heading and, and anything about climate itself that came to do with it? Or was it just an interest and something, because I know that you, you studied geography as well as maths and, and, um, and physics, so you had that background but was there more to it than that was there something that really led you to studying it and then once you did to want to do a PhD in what you did yeah but a bit of both the, the the I just find it so fascinating and I think the the scalability of it the the fact that you know it, it, it puts so much into perspective <laughs> um, that I think I really enjoyed like looking at time skills over geological time is just you know, is, was mind blowing to me when I first got into it, and still is to you know the rocks that I so I, be, I as part of my PhD I took rocks from the Earth's surface that were billions of years old. That was when they formed, but used certain. It was really chemistry, basically looking at the the different comp chemical compositions of the minerals that were within the rock and figuring out what had happened to them within the last few hundred million years. So these rocks were billions of years old, but the techniques that I were use, was using would tell me about their their more recent history. And I think the reason that I went into this sort of earth or rock dating um, field or sort of looking at earth history and evolution was because I just found it so fascinating that you could use what had happened in the past um, in a certain area 
and extrapolate that to figure out what was going to happen in other regions of the earth in the future. So, for instance, there's a, a region in Eastern Africa. It's known as the East African Rift System, and that will eventually, um, it's currently splitting up. So the Earth's crust or lithosphere is currently breaking apart. And eventually, in the future, there will be a huge ocean there, um, just like there is now in the Southern Atlantic. So about 180 million years ago, Africa and South America started to break up, and that's what's happening again in another region of the current Earth. And I just find that idea that you could take what had happened in the past and figure out what was going to happen in the future just so fascinating and and yeah like you said the the techniques I, I was using as part of my PhD didn't have applications for sort of a climate science but there are techniques similar techniques that do and I think that was just so fascinating to me that we could use that we could use earth sciences to help to kind of look at some of our challenges that we're currently facing to try and yeah, um, model what we can what's going to happen in the future and use that as a way of you know preventing or preventing catastrophes which I find found really fascinating. That is really interesting so the East African rift is opening up to split what Africa into two continents eventually is that what's happening right now? Well, yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty, we can do so much modelling. We don't know because there's, you know, the Earth's outer shell is like a jigsaw. So there could be bits that bang into each other, basically, due to those um, different movements that could cause sort of, we're not entirely sure what will happen, but it, the, the continent there is separating. Um, and there is a sort of model for that, that eventually that will form into yeah, a huge sort of ocean. So it's really fascinating taking different parts of the Earth's plate, the different plates on the Earth's surface and yeah, modelling them to figure out what's happened in the past, but also what could happen in future in different regions. Yeah, I'm just going to take a side path here with a question <laughs> about that answer, which is that we're talking about millions and millions of years into the future and that there are models that actually look at what potential outcomes could take place from that. And that is so amazing and and really empowers me and actually makes me full of wonder and awe and even though you, you we're not 100% sure but there's this real mindset today to catch science off guard in a way that if you're not 100% sure about something it's just a theory or just an idea and that it could be wrong but how do you take with your science lens challenges to i guess experts and and scientific rigor and thinking and, and the scientific method in general that the fact is that mm. what makes it special is that we're never certain whereas so many people want certainty in their lives and, and certainty in, in what's going to happen before they'll take it on so that's why we end up with conspiracy thinking and yeah. wild wacky ideas taking hold when we have clear science that is there to actually help us find out more and more as we go along rather than just settle on a on a truth how does that play in your life and what's your perspective as a scientist? Yeah, that's really, really interesting point. And I guess that's yeah, the really key bit. And that's something that I think science, you know, as a scientist and that as a then science communicator for a while, I think that's a really important point is, is you know, we're, we're never going to be certain that any system is complex. And I think that's something that, yeah, my PhD, because I use a lot of computer modeling, really made me appreciate. Um, is the fact that models are just models. You know, they're, they're not, you can't be you can't be 100% accurate. You can only make predictions, 
and and observe whether your observations and what's the the data fit I guess in a model um, and so that sort of that way of looking at a problem or a bit of information has really taught me that yeah you just have you have to the importance of data and the importance of evidence-based thinking and approaches to all life's challenges and I think yeah like you said that you know that the unfortunate I guess sometimes case where we have you know speculation not based on evidence and that can yeah lead to some you know damaging sort of I guess policies or ideas or because they're not based on evidence and I think yeah that's just so crucial and where the, the sort of I guess kind of new and up and coming field of science communication is so important to take complex ideas and uh, make them accessible for all and that's a really a key bit and that's actually why I've worked for a while as a science communicator both writing for Cosmos magazine but also an organization called Science Gallery Melbourne where they hire um, sort of university graduates and, and students to communicate complex information to, in a kind of gallery uh, exhibition setting um, to promote discussion and conversations about um, some cutting edge topics, but in a, an accessible way for, for scientists, non-scientists, you know, it doesn't matter. It's for all to be part of that discussion. And I think that's really key um, to sort of getting everyone on board with some of our most important and significant challenges of the current day and future challenges. You're bringing writing back in and that love of writing. So it wasn't an enemy after all, but the best friend of science, isn't it? <laughs> the fact that we yeah, need absolutely. people that write and, and can be, can touch on people's emotions and touch on people and the, the joy and art of storytelling and, and hearing great stories as well. What is it about storytelling that makes and emotions and, and getting to people's feelings and, and I guess getting people invested in something that happens through stories and writing rather than through or even a photo or an art piece that doesn't come through a graph or statistics that are just so obvious that to anyone that knows how to read them that this will happen in the future if we don't do A, B and C or if we do A, B and C that this thing will happen in the future. That doesn't translate to policy or to, to votes or whatever we need to actually embed it into our society. So how have you been able to translate all the knowledge that you have in science and how have you been able to gr grapple with the data and find out through evidence and objective thinking and reasoning and, and really, you know, painstaking means to try to find a result. And then when you go and present that, it's not working until you have years of this sort of storytelling or something to be able to mm -hmm. change the mindsets of people. Have you embraced that? Does it frustrate you? And what is your process in connecting those two areas? Yeah, it is. It's it's, um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it is the power of storytelling. I guess it does make sense because it you know if you if you can make it relatable and you can hook people from the start, which is what stories tend to do if you write in a sort of storytelling. If that's if you use that method instead of just providing factual information, you can hook your audience much quicker. But it is it's really fa it is fascinating. I I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, I wonder if it's if graphs are just intimidating. If I wonder if if you're not used to looking at information in a graphical form, whether it just if it's intimidating or it's just not. Yeah, because I mean, graphs are not particularly enjoyable unless you really understand, I guess, the system below it and what they're telling you. But you, yeah, you have to have sort of like very specialized knowledge in a lot of cases to interpret graphs that 
so it's not enjoyable as such if you're not that you don't have you know spent years and years studying it so I think the yeah that is a really it's important tool for science communicators that you know I'm still learning as well as a science communicator but to tell it in a more and make it relatable to your audience and maybe that's something that not many people can relate to graphs (laughs) and maybe that's something to do with it but I really don't know what the answer is to that. I think yeah graphs without knowing what that actually not only what it means but it's back to that purpose why Mm. does this matter it actually shows well let's use an example that's really current right now the modeling around the coronavirus and Mm. what the flattening the curve and things like that that people are starting to use colloquially that were once you know not part of anyone's vocabulary um, except people in the field and now everyone's talking about it and so because it's affecting us and affecting people directly or at least society that we live in directly we've now taken a vested interest into learning about that or at least trying to discover it and it's the same with um everyone becomes a horse racing expert on Melbourne Cup Day but knows nothing about it during the rest of the year or, or whatever. So it, it really makes – context is everything. And it really is. And graphs yeah. without context, no matter how real they are, I guess that's where the problem lies. And right now we, we're finding that people are looking at these models and sharing graphs and all sorts of scientific data about, oh, when are we going to be out of this um, – you know, social isolation, when are we going to be able to, to get back to things? When's the footy going to be back on? Or when can I travel yeah. overseas? Or whatever it might be, they're starting to hunt the data and look at it. And yes. that's encouraging. <laughs> it has it to is, be, doesn't it? it? It's, yeah, it's, it? Yeah, it has to be. That's a really good point. Um, and I think that's because, yeah, it's like, why should you care? And that, you know, there's, there's such a strong reason for people to care right now about that data and those and the, and the modeling and the science that goes behind what is being communicated and I think that is yeah it's really encouraging <laughs> it's a really good way of putting it and definitely one positive out of all of this is that people are kind of paying attention to scientists and what the the, the data is and the evidence at the moment is and why we should be following these sort of yeah strict stay-at-home measures it's really because it is it's life and death and I think that's really encouraging that we've been shown this way that we can all care about data and, and the science behind it. It's definitely one positive. No doubt. And and the fact that we aren't able to travel, and I know that that affects you greater than many because you've you come from overseas and I know that you had some friends and family that were going to stay and uh, mm. come from Scotland that weren't able to. But travel has played a big part in your life. When did that start and how do you see it continuing? I don't actually know when it started. I mean, we always uh, travel. Maybe it was probably for my family. My mom and dad made such an importance on them that we would that we always went overseas once a year and we explored somewhere new. And I think they probably embedded this passion for seeing new places, explore like exploring new places and cultures and. You know, my dad was always teaching us bits of French when we were, say, in France or, you know, wherever we were, he would always sort of teach us um, history about the region or... So I think probably a lot to do with my family. I remember um, when I went to university during the, the Freshers' Week or the All Week Orientation Week, I sought out the study abroad uh, information booth. So I had made such a... Yeah, from that moment that I was going to study abroad, and I don't know where that came from, but I think since um, yeah, I moved to Vancouver, to University of British Columbia, I spent my second um, year of undergraduate there. And I think since then, I just had had the bug, as people call it, <laughs> the travel bug. 
And yeah, I always just loved traveling and exploring new places. And I think that was something that I um, also found the passion in earth sciences or research in general is the, was one of the key bits that I enjoyed was being able to travel to new places to present your own findings at conferences or to do carry out field work. And I think that was just yeah, something I really enjoyed about earth sciences as well for a very long time was the ability to travel um, as part of your work. And I think a lot of earth scientists would yeah love that aspect to it. For sure. So you went to Canada in your undergraduate year. What, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess I, yeah, I just, I, I loved being somewhere new. And I think I, you know, was 19. <laughs> I think it um, gave me great self-confidence and independence that maybe I, you know, learned a lot quicker than I would have done potentially if I hadn't have gone because, you know, I had to fend for myself. I remember get uh, the first night that I arrived, there was something to do with terminology, the difference between, we call it a duvet, here it's a doona, and there was something else there. And I ended up turning up to my halls of residence there and I didn't have any sleeping, I didn't have a doona. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> that was my first night in Canada, and I remember learning, like, very quickly that, you know, that, that was going to, I was going to have to learn quick and, you know, make decisions for myself because um, there was no one there to help me at that point. <laughs> yeah. Very traumatic for um, when you've just <laughs> moved overseas. But yeah, I think that yeah, great uh, independence, um, and, but also just being able to meet, you know, anyone who's probably done the study abroad experience is you met so many people from so many different cultures because there was other students there, obviously. So although I, you know, spent a year in Canada, I made some of my closest friends were from Australia, actually, um, and uh, Mexico and Italy. They were my closest friends living in Canada because we're all experiencing this incredible opportunity together. Um, so I think that was really important about you know, um, learning about other people's cultures and but also being adaptable. I think that's something you learn when you move overseas quickly um, is the ability to adapt to new surroundings, new challenges. Yeah, and that's something I yeah, feel that has been really important um, in my own development is, yeah, the, when I've moved country twice, that you you learn quickly to be, yeah, to adapt quickly. But also just sort of, yeah, confidence. I think I would have described myself as an extrovert, but when you're flung into a new place where you don't know anyone, it's um, it's amazing how quickly you can feel or you, you can become introverted but then you've kind of got to push yourself back out um <laughs> to become an extrovert to you know make friends or you know find out where things are yeah so um, I think adaptability is something I learned a lot from that experience yeah, and that adaptability and flexibility gives you power as you said confidence but realizing how powerful we are as humans I mean we have people that create new lives after a war or as a refugee mm. or through all sorts of different reasons and and they they come to a new country and they they may have had this yeah traumatic experience rather than a a nice one you know like our travel has been more based on choice and and but there are still complications that come along the way and it doesn't matter how I guess it does matter but you know there's many different ways that people end up traveling or finding new places to live but I think there's strength that comes through that no matter what circumstance that is and traveling and finding yourself in a new area really allows you to meet people that are like-minded because if you just put yourself in a little town in the middle of nowhere, 
I mean, you can learn a little bit about that town, but people are fairly stuck in their routine. But you said that you met, you met, you know, Mexicans, Italians, Australians, people from all around the world that are in the same mindset as you and wanting to find out. It really gets you out of your shell and enables you to to explore and just to get out of that routine and realise that risks are worth taking sometimes. Did you find that as well? Absolutely, yeah. I would agree with that. And, yeah, like you said, like you said as well, I am... Um... I, yeah, I've been lucky to have, you know, it was a lot of choice my travel, which is, yeah, I feel very fortunate to have had um, those opportunities and that sort of, yeah, those sort of opportunities. But it does. And I think it also, I was reflecting on this with another friend recently who had moved from overseas and, it, you know, it allows you to reinvent yourself. You know, it's like the friendships you have from high school. <laughs> um, you know, they they knew you when you were you were still a child, basically. You were developing through your, your teenage years. And when you move somewhere new, you've you've kind of got this fresh not not that I had a bad slate beforehand but you kind of got this fresh you can sort of um yeah like meet people that that are more like what your sort of your values align to or I don't know it just allows you to kind of explore new new things and yeah resilience I think is a big part of that even though I've you know not had I feel I've been very lucky but there's a there's a resilience that you have to build to move into somewhere where you don't know anyone for sure yeah I like that I think university or just every school, I mean, going from primary school to secondary school is a chance to to change the way you're perceived potentially, depending on how many people followed you along. And then university is a massive one for that. You see people becoming completely different once you, you see someone from secondary school at uni or, or, you know, at a reunion, you're like, you're completely different from what I remember. But then oftentimes people fall back into the roles that they had with those people. So it's really important to actually be able to find that independence and realize that you're not stuck based on your experiences or what you were perceived of when you were a teenager or in your early twenties or whatever, that you're your own person that's ever changing. And that's, I think that gives you freedom as well. Once you realize that first of all, people are in their own heads more than worrying about you. (laughs) And secondly, yeah, and people, and then also that, the way that you project yourself and want to be is actually pretty powerful that, you know, not that fake it till you make it, but actually live it until you, you yeah. are living it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, you've, you've articulated that really well, what I've probably fum- stumbled through there, but I, yeah, I agree. It's like the, it's not that I was faking a different persona before, but you know, you change, you develop, you grow as you grow older and it's nice to, to be able to to be the person you you want to be in that moment, or from what you've learned, or you've yeah grown in in certain ways, and um, I think that's yeah it gives you even greater freedom when you move somewhere new. Did you have a teacher or a lecturer or someone that inspired you to, I guess, complete a research paper, have it published, and inspired you to to do the work that you've done so far, and then maybe even the fact that they inspired you led you to want to get into education have you had that experience absolutely um <laughs> I, I had some great teachers at high school um, I had a physics teacher who was really amazing but it was Christina Persano Dr Christina Persano she is at the University of Glasgow and she still is um, she was my undergraduate earth science teacher but she also was my co-supervisor for my owners project and she was just incredible she was the most innovative and lectures a lot of yeah, lectures is, is quite uh, sort of strict, or like lecture format in general is doesn't leave much scope to be innovative, I guess. And she just always found a way on field work. She was just incredible and she was so inspiring. And she kind of had part of my inspiration for following the uh, sort of sub field of earth sciences that I did. And it's still an inspiration. So we actually, yeah, kept, 
you know, I've seen, I saw her at a conference a few years ago and, you know, she, it was just so lovely to see her and she's so encouraging of all of her students. She was then and still is. And she was a real inspiration for me to sort of show, I guess, that she showed that you could still, she was so, she was very humorous and that you could have humour and that you're, I guess you, you didn't have to have this strict line between your professional work and your sort of not personal but you know you could be yourself in the work that you did and she you know she had such a um she was very passionate about what she did and yeah was just a very well-rounded person that I just have always looked up to and still do so yeah she was definitely a huge source of inspiration and in, in both sort of the research field the pathway that I kind of went down but also as a educator and what I do now that's brilliant I know that science is probably a bit more equitable than something like maths or engineering in terms of gender, but, and you mentioned this a little bit before about how you you didn't really realise that there was this disparity in numbers of men and women in the field of maths and physics, but how have you approached being a woman in the STEM field? And I know that you've now wanting to inspire other, other women and other girls by being at Whittlesea Tech and doing the things that you do, but did you ever find it challenging and confronting in the field that you've been working in? And if you did, how did you overcome that? And the other side of that is, is it just perceived difference or is there actually that that disparity going on? Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I really don't, I think like I kind of touched on a little bit earlier, I've been very lucky um, in the pathway that I've followed that I've never felt so geology or earth science as well as a traditionally male dominated field but my university undergraduate cohort was 50 50 um yeah like I said I never felt like I shouldn't have been studying physics or maths and I don't and from memory at school the the split wasn't I wasn't you know I wasn't the only female in the class and yeah and I've never felt discouraged by any of my uh, senior colleagues or um, supervisors I was always a and my PhD supervisors were incredible. They were male and they were so encouraging of me and my ability. And, and yeah, so I've never, I think I've just been extremely lucky. I don't know if that is a, I mean, we just, I just, I don't know if I can comment because I just feel like I've had a very lucky pathway and I've never felt discouraged. But the, the data suggests that there's less young women wanting to take up STEM fields and in a lot of yeah like you mentioned engineering in particular it's something sitting at like 11% in industry here in Australia it's very low or maybe even even lower so yeah I think there is um, sort of some that there's some work to do in that space I guess to encourage uptake and, and I know earth sciences as well as um, there's not as much uptake um, of earth sciences so I, yeah it's, it's a really tricky one very complex and differs um, I mean, there's a very complex issue and there's a lot that goes behind that as well, rather than just gender. But I think what I, I was just to try to encourage, I, I think, yeah, from self-reflect, post-reflection, I realised that, you know, I never had um, anyone tell me I shouldn't be doing a certain subject or following a certain pathway. I, you know, I find myself more of a technologist now than I am a scientist. But again, I don't, you know, there's not a big distinction and I just try to um, showcase to all young people that come to the tech school, but particularly for young women, that you should never be discouraged from following any pathway that you're interested in. And so if I can be of some sort of inspiration to young women, then by being someone that's followed, I guess, these non-traditional pathways that, that women took. So, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. And I'm not sure, but I, if I can help encourage more equal representation or just young people in general following what they want to do, then... 
I hope that I can through the work that I do currently. Do you consider yourself a optimist or a pessimist or somewhere in between when we look at the information overload that we're sometimes given in society, the fact that, and, and this is where I, the, the viewpoint that I come from is that I am often overwhelmed by the respect falling for experts, uh, for political regimes becoming a, more and more populous at the moment, or something like logging being, I guess, given the the okay in Victoria and old growth forests. And things like that sometimes make me think, well, I'm hearing all this stuff about the world needing to be protected and restored, yet we're actually going the other way. So I consider myself a pessimist in that regard. Um, but then I actually overcome that through having conversations with people with different perspectives and, and trying to find out the full story. And, yeah, just really trying to be what I would consider a happy activist or someone that can go around and always be positive even though there's that negativity in the back of my head, what way do you approach news and things that you hear about the world? Do you ignore it? Do you take it on board and, and grieve and then throw it out in love? Do you sometimes despair? I don't know. How, or, or are you unaffected by it? What is your mm. yeah um, glass half full, glass half empty or something in between? What is your pathway? I think you have a little bit. A little bit of both as well, like yourself. But I, I think generally I try to be um, optimistic. Um, I probably would describe myself as an optimist. But there's definitely moments of pessimism when, <laughs> yeah, we we yeah, like you said, you've mentioned quite a few um, points where we see that you know sort of policies or um, people's actions aren't reflecting what yeah science is telling us we need to do to protect our planet. But I try to stay optimistic, and I think there's there's definite signs that we're heading in a way you know, our young people, which I think we can all agree with, like the movement that Greta Thunberg is, has created around the world is incredibly inspiring. So I think I have confidence in our next generation, particularly, um, that they're, you know, that some of the, the things, like you mentioned, that, that, you know, are undesirable at the moment, that that, that will change. And so I think, yeah, I, I try to stay optimistic and, yeah, I have great confidence in that our young people will will lead the way forward in a way that is, yeah, optimistic. And, uh, yeah, I think that, yeah, great confidence in our young people. <laughs> I want to touch on that because you are working with young people, but you weren't trained straight away. You, you came in it from another field, I guess, and and had experience in other fields. And a lot of teachers, you know, start with a, a bachelor degree in arts and education or science and education from the get-go. So you've come in from working with adults and working with data and working with in fields that are, I guess, existing and, and people that are experts already and, and sort of going in that direction. And now that you've taken a step towards working with young people, you say that you're confident through what young people are showing. What have young people taught you and what inspires you about young people specifically? Have you been inspired? Because I know that Melbourne's northern suburbs, in many cases, it's very diverse, but it can be considered sort of a more lower socioeconomic environment than Eastern Melbourne, for example. So what have you seen from people that come from such a diverse backgrounds of, you know, both economically, but also religious and, and cultural and, and language? 
you've you've been able to engage with all of these different people and em- embrace their background and them embracing yours in this really great learning facility that I'm super inspired by. What has mm. inspired you and what have you learned from that? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, to this, the sort of transition, I think, was for that reason. I was working with young people and they were so, you know, they were, they're so optimistic and they would look at a challenge in a completely different way to people that have been working in different fields for a very long time would look at a challenge or a new idea. And I just find that so inspiring. And so that was sort of a, a big part of why I wanted to transition into working with education. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't study a teaching degree, but I had been sort of a teacher of sorts in different ways. So like I'd always... I think, yeah, I guess I haven't really touched on that yet either, but when I was started high school, I wanted to become a primary school teacher and I did my sort of equivalent of year 10 work experience in a primary school. And then sort of at university during my undergraduate and during my PhD, I taught undergraduate field course, field and lab courses and loved that. So I've always had a, I've always, teaching's always stayed with me, um, even though I didn't do it for a number of years uh, as like my full-time role I guess um, but I've always loved it like I, I worked I volunteered sorry in a primary school in Vancouver in a, in a low socioeconomic area there as well where students came from a lot of diverse backgrounds and I and I think I just saw the power in that sort of diversity and environment and I, I, that's what one definite aspect that I love about working at the tech school in the north of Melbourne is that there's so much diversity and so many languages spoken by this, the young people that come in and it's just so fascinating hearing about all these um, diverse pathways and backgrounds. But I think, yeah, just the the willingness that uh, young people take on the ideas that we throw at them. I mean, I haven't really touched on the, we give them a challenge and they have two to three days really to work on this challenge, to come up with an idea and prototype it, numerous prototypes, learn quickly, fail fast, learn from that, what you've learned from that process and then do it again. And the the willingness and eagerness that our young people sort of take to these challenges I think is just so inspiring and I'm sure you've seen it yourself that I just yeah I find being able to surround myself with that every day is just yeah it's so satisfying (laughs) Um, and yeah I just I love what I love what I do because of that I get to work with these young people that yeah are so incredible. Oh that's amazing and I love that you did take the pathway to to follow your instinct and follow your values and, and what made you happy. I know that you're loving and, and you were successful in your previous jobs. And, and what was it that got you out of the lab? I mean, was it just the fact that you wanted to em- embrace the learning? Was it a hard decision to make when you did decide to move yourself from lab work and, and mm. pure science to education? Was the part of writing and being that sort of in-between voice from the science into the public that helped you get there? Yeah, I think, yes, it was tricky. I think um, anyone that sort of leaves academia, or particularly science academia, it's quite hard because sort of it's, once you leave, it's very tricky to get back in. So, because a lot of your sort of credibility is based on your publishing record. So it is a hard, it was a hard decision in that respect. But I remember I just had this moment, I was at a conference a few years ago and I was, presented my own findings, but I was, you know, there and I was listening to another talk. And I, I just remember thinking, I don't think I want to be here in five years still discussing this. I still find it really fascinating, but it just lost the important. It wasn't that it wasn't important. It just I hadn't become as it wasn't important enough to me anymore. And I realized that I was enjoying the work that I was doing, volunteering um, with many different schools and programs and outreach activities at Melbourne University. 
I was enjoying them a lot more than the work I was doing in the lab. I think being quite an extroverted person, I find the lab work itself quite tricky. And I think a lot of people that leave academia and go into the sort of work that I do have similar thoughts. But yeah, I just found that that was the space that I wanted to be in. And, and it was tricky in the transition. But now that I'm there, uh, yeah, I reflect and look back and I'm definitely in the, the place that I want to be for now, at least. <laughs> I just, yeah, I really, really love the work that I get to do. Sometimes I can't believe that people pay me to do the work that I do because it's so, so enjoyable. But yeah, it's really uh, great to be in a sort of transformative education space that, yeah, I get to be in in the work that I do. Oh, that's brilliant to hear that you're, yeah, that, that idea of going to work and being willing to do it without pay. I mean, we all need to pay bills and stuff, but that idea yeah. is something that a lot of people would find foreign. What would you yeah, suggest absolutely. to people that want to change field or direction? What was something that you, what was the lesson that you gained from, from making the change? And did you, did you study while working in your previous field? Did you make the, the decision to move and then have a safety net or did you just jump straight into it? How did you go about it and what would you recommend to other people that might be debating whether they want to find their spark again? Yeah, um, I think yeah, you've sort of touched on two points there that I think was a good reason is that, yeah, now I look, you know, we spend so much of our time at work and I get to enjoy, I mean, obviously there's bad days in every job or, you know, tiring days or whatever, but the work that I do, I enjoy. And I think that's such an important part for me is that I get to enjoy my day-to-day. Um, so that was something that maybe I wasn't do wasn't as much because I found the the industry that I was in before academia quite there wasn't a good work-life balance and that I couldn't shut off very easily and that could have just been something to do with my own way of looking at it like it was very hard to sort of shut off the sort of academic like feeling like you had to constantly be working or public or creating output Um, and it's not that I don't create output or work hard but I just um, it's just a different sort of form and I feel like I can sort of yeah I think because it's it's I enjoy the work that I do and it's even if there's it's harder to shut off because I'm enjoying it. It's a different sort of, yeah, space. But also I think I was lucky or unlucky in the fact that when I finished my PhD, I was an international student living in Australia. So I went through this really funny year, um, funny in inverted commas, um, where I was applying to for permanent residency. So I didn't have a, a long-term visa, which meant no one would really hire me for any long-term position. So I got to experience a lot of different roles in that year so I, I had you know three month positions or casual work doing writing I worked and managed an outreach program for a while that was sort of uh, trained university students to go out into schools and promote science and run workshops and things I yeah, worked for a gallery so in a sort of museum space communicating complex science to general audiences and yeah was doing outreach work as well and so I think I just got to get a taster through these sort of short-term roles even if it was just because I was waiting on a visa to come through but yeah that wasn't probably the only reason I didn't get the jobs but it was you know it, was, it allowed me to have these short-term roles that gave me a breadth of experience and a taster for what the industry could be like I think was really useful so I mean for other people I guess that was one experience so there, there's a multiple ways to do it but I guess going out and, and ch- chatting to people who are working in the field that you want to move into I, I remember there was someone that I met and we're now actually very good friends so she was working in a similar sort of environment and I remember we you know we would go for coffee and she actually got me one of those short-term roles within managing that outreach program program which I was so thankful for because it gave me an insight and some quick experience in that space 
And so I guess chatting to people that are in the space that you potentially want to move into and seeing if there's any a way that you can gain some experience before maybe making the full transition. So is it, you know, working one day a week or volunteering one day a week or working on, volunteering on the weekends or something that can give you a bit of a taster for the field before you, I guess, jump into it. <laughs> yeah, and that experience that so often we're, we're never given, it's it's often a risk to, to jump into something and try something out. We want to get straight into work and into the industry that we've trained for and, and that's it and many people feel stuck in that. But that idea of, yeah, seeking people out and seeking out new experiences really help open and cast the net a lot wider and you're better off in the long run, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, I think so, because I feel like I've found a spot. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say for all um, experiences, but for me, it was really valuable, that sort of transitional year, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. I I was sort of pining for that, you know, full-time role that would be more stable, because... But but now looking back, I think it was really valuable and useful for me to have that sort of a year where I got to experience a bunch of different roles. Absolutely. You discussed early in the piece that you've had a lot more time for yourself and to, to do things that you love and are for you. When did you start to, I guess, take, what do you do to take care of yourself generally? And what is it that you like to focus on to ensure that you're able to, I guess, perform at your best and, and be your best self do you you mentioned you practice yoga what else and and how does yoga impact you and when did you get into it and what else do you do yeah um so yeah I guess sort of thinking about when was probably during my PhD I mean most people that have done PhDs can probably reflect it's quite a hard process <laughs> builds a lot of resilience um because it's completely self-directed and you you know it's hard to sort of have a good work-life balance because no one else can pick up if you know you for whatever reason you can't do the the whatever the work is that you have to do so I think that taught me to try have a process of being very um self-reflective so taking pausing and and figuring out what I needed to do to uh, maintain a healthy life sort of both mental well-being and physical well-being so I think that's when I kind of sort of yeah my very sort of organizing scheduling oriented ways but I sort of made sure I was doing regular sort of exercise and both two things that I really love. So I think finding, yeah, I think over the last few years or probably since my PhD quite a few years ago, realized that spending time doing things you actually enjoy rather than trying to gain the same output with something you don't enjoy. For me, that is running. I do not enjoy running, but I found swimming and yoga to be exercise that I could undertake that was both physically good for me but also it allowed it provided this hour or however long that I was swimming or doing yoga that where it was mentally uh, was good for my mental well-being because it almost provided this kind of focused time where I just got to sort of zone out a little bit and sort of yeah it was almost meditative I think I mentioned at the start in itself yeah finding something that is good for both your mental and physical well-being and, and going out for getting it into nature I love yeah walking as well and I think it was yeah really during my PhD because I kind of recognized that it was it was easy almost to kind of like um, let those things go because you feel like you're kind of constantly against the clock during that sort of process that yeah I learned to be yeah to create good practices for myself. Great and I like that idea of yeah trying you you have a an outcome that you want to achieve whether that's to be healthy to be in a in a space that's more reflective or more inward and and quiet if you don't like meditating on a cushion 
find another way to find that mm. space. And and likewise with you, you know, don't just bang your head around against the door saying, why can't I love running? You know, swimming is the way to go. And I really love that approach that sometimes we we are told by someone that you should be doing this or we see someone successful doing A, B or C and we think we need to follow and emulate that. But really following what is good for you while still ensuring that you are, you know, achieving goals or, or what's going to be good for you in the long run is super important. And for me, you know, for example, that's cooking. Mm. I find myself so much healthier when I've got time because I love cooking and I love coming up with creative meals and, and, and really fresh meals and fresh veggies and stuff. Whereas I'm never more depressed when I have to grab something frozen and microwave it and you know, because I just don't have time. And even if it's healthy, I'd much rather have, that's when I get into the bad habits of having the bad snacks because, you know, there's nothing enjoyable about it. It's just fuel and you you sometimes make those poor choices. So I ensure that I give myself the time, even in the pre-COVID age of spending that bit of extra time cooking something really delicious and healthy every night rather than just throwing something in the microwave. Whereas someone else, that might not be a a priority and, and that's easy for them to do to eat a healthy meal that's done in bulk on the Sunday and, and that's it. So it's really about finding what is for you and, and unique to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think and that's really, really important um, and that's awesome that you've found the, that cooking is that for you because I think it is, it's really important to find something that um, gives you, yeah, sort of enjoyment as well as a good output <laughs> um, and that, yeah, and prioritising time for that which will be different for everyone. But yeah, for me, it's a lot to do with sort of yeah, prioritizing time to carry out yoga or swimming in pre-COVID times. <laughs> do you have anything that you'd like to recommend? A book, a podcast, an article, a subscription, a TV show, something that has really formed and sort of guided you in your life. It could have been something really recent or something that's that you you came across a long time ago, but something that you think that would be um, really beneficial for people to to have a look at. Oh, that's a good question, um, and I bet I'll go I'll go away now, and then I'll think, oh, that's the that's the thing that I would have thought. But <laughs> um, oh, it's a good question. I think something um, that I'm sure a lot of people have read already, but for anyone that maybe hasn't. Um, um, I read the book, but I also listened to the audiobook while well, I was doing a lot of lab work, lab work actually. Um, but Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari, have you read? That's something that it's I... A, a brilliant book. I posted it on my new Instagram page that I've just created. Uh, Did you and I posted Sapiens, Homo Deus and 21 Lessons all together 20, and said, yep. have a look at these uh, brilliant reads. Yeah, go on. I'd yeah, love you to think... discuss it. Yeah, I think I just love his style of, yeah, we're talking about storytelling. And he, yeah, I think he's just someone that's been able to capture so much kind of factual, historic information and and just and philosophical ideas in a really captivating way. And I think, um, yeah, I've listened to him on a couple of podcasts as well. And I just think he's he's got a really great way of breaking down quite complex information or ideas or concepts and it's a big read. Uh, or they are big reads. Um, I'm currently actually reading Homodeus. I haven't managed to finish it yet. Um, but <laughs> the book got me thinking about so many of the concepts and ideas, um, both during the book and through his writing and the concepts he was covering, but then sort of branching off from that. Um, so that would be probably one that I would definitely recommend for anyone that hasn't read it. 
Um, and yeah, there's a couple of different forms. So if you're not a reader yourself, there's definitely an audiobook. And he's had some fantastic podcasts discussing the concepts and ideas of the books as well. Yeah, that's my experience. I, I yeah, fell in love with him instantly as soon as I started hearing him speak. I actually, um, yeah, a podcast got me into him. I think he had a discussion with Sam Harris that I listened to and... Yeah, I've listened to that one as well. And that was amazing. Yeah, and and then from there I went and, yeah, got the books and had a read. And I think I Homo Deus I started with actually and then I went back to Sapiens and then mm. forward to 21 Lessons. But it was incredible the way he writes and what he writes about and, yeah, obviously as a historian but then also connecting so many different multidisciplinary areas into a book that is so special and succinct but also telling us or, or guiding people to think about who we are and, and why we are the way we are do not take it for granted that we do have I guess some sort of agency as well that sometimes the stories that we tell or that we're we're told as facts uh, are simply stories and some are worth protecting and investing in and some aren't and and I love that attitude as well Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So well discussed. And even if you don't completely agree or whatever, but I guess he's very um, objective as well, which I really like. He kind of puts all sort of arguments across for different ideas and concepts. But yeah, so fascinating and would highly recommend for anyone that hasn't read his stuff. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I've got a book that had a similar resounding effect on me. The first one was Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. They're quite similar. So that's something I'd suggest uh, to you and anyone else. Definitely check it out. Awesome. And finally, the name of this podcast is Moments of Clarity. And my uh, question to every guest at the end of the session is, what is a moment of clarity for you, whether it came from reflecting on this conversation or something that you've been thinking of and stewing over recently? What is a moment of clarity for you? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think I was thinking about this earlier, actually, because I think it probably it's such a good time to be on the podcast because I'm sure there's so many people right now that are having moments of clarity. And I think I was reflecting, you know, I was thinking about my pathway before um, we were just discussing, before we came, I came onto the podcast, recognizing or realizing that um, a lot of the changes in direction, I guess, my pathways have taken are all to do with following my interests, I guess, at that time. But also I wasn't certain then. So it wasn't, you know, I don't, reflect and think that I was really certain of this pathway when I decided to go down that and I think maybe that was an important thing for me to recognize and for going forward in my own future pathway is that you know you probably always won't be certain when you you go to make sort of big life decisions but just follow what you're interested in and what you're passionate about at that time and hopefully it will pay off and it's yeah I feel like it's currently paying off in the line of work I'm doing but also I guess what I've been reflecting on and I guess my moment of clarity recently has been the importance of taking time to reflect and we all say that yeah and want to have more time for reflection but just prioritizing that when I come out of um, the you know kind of isolation stay-at-home period is still making time for that reflection and pausing and yeah just taking a minute to reflect on your like your current state and and yeah well-being and everything so I think yeah that was something that I was thinking about um, as part of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Moments of Clarity, Vari, and thank it's you. it's been an absolute pleasure. So, yeah, thank yeah, you. Thank and you. I've really enjoyed it. it. Thanks so much for asking me to come on. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries it's at all. very honoured and, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much.
If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Twitter or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.